Thank you for joining in on our Bible class tonight. We are going to be talking about truth, authority. We're going to be talking about the standards of truth and what the Bible says about denominationalism and this idea of ecumenism. And God willing, after this class tonight, by our next class, we'll start getting into the actual denominations. So we're kind of almost done with the introduction to the series so let's talk about truth and authority first. It is very clear that the Bible declares itself to reveal the truth of the reality that we live in. And that truth, this truth that the Bible teaches is for everyone. It's not just for believers, but this is the actual truth. So we're going to go over some scriptures that reveal just that. In John 8.32, we read, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's what Jesus said. So there is a truth that can be known and Jesus teaches us that truth that sets us free. But we have to be a disciple. We have to be a real disciple, as he says in the previous verse. We read in John 14, verse 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus identifies himself as truth itself. He is truth incarnate. So if you don't have Jesus, you don't have truth. Furthermore, as Jesus was praying the priestly prayer in John 17, in verse 17, we see how he says, sanctify them, meaning all his followers, his disciples, by the truth. And then he says, your word is truth. So this truth that Jesus speaks of, this truth can be ascertained by reading the Bible, by knowing the word of God. And we're going to see later on in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, that when we read the Bible, we can actually learn the mystery of the truth, the revelation that was revealed to the apostles and the prophets. We see in 2 Timothy 2.15, where Paul encourages Timothy, he says, Be diligent to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, correctly teaching the word of truth. So we see here that the Bible itself is called the word of truth. The truth can be mishandled. It can be misrepresented if we don't understand how to handle it. So let's talk a little bit more about this truth. Is truth relative? Is truth absolute? Or is it a mix of both? Some people out there are relativists. Relativism suggests that truth is subjective, that it can vary from person to person, from culture to culture. What's true from one culture doesn't necessarily have to be true for another. Some people take it context by context. So according to this view, what is considered true differs based on individual beliefs, on cultural norms, on historical circumstances. So relativism implies that there is no absolute or objective truth that exists independently of human perspectives. 
Whereas on the other hand, we have absolutism. This means that objective truth holds that there are facts and realities that exist independent of whatever people may believe, whatever they may feel, whatever they may perceive. So according to this perspective, certain truths are universal and apply regardless of individual viewpoints or cultural differences. Objective truth implies that there is a single reality that can be discovered through observation, through reasoning, and through scientific inquiry. If truth were relative, think about this, if truth were really relative, then I guess scientists would be very misinformed. I mean, scientists themselves have to be absolutists. Otherwise, their own careers would be in vain. What would they be looking for with the scientific method? So if we can believe truth can be found via the scientific method, then likewise, we can believe that God's revelation in the Bible can be found the same way, since it's not based on man-made opinions or perspectives. I want to recommend this book titled Common Sense. It's a very good book authored by David W. Berceau. He's a title examination lawyer. He wrote, Will the Real Heretic Please Stand Up? It's a book that many of us read uh, many years ago. But in this book titled Common Sense, he argues that jurisprudence, which is the science of law, <laughs> he says that it should also be considered an absolute science by many who treat it as such, instead of those who consider law to be more political or argumentative. So he speaks of truth as something that should be able to be identified by everyone, regardless of belief, because that's what true science is. It's discoverable. It can be ascertained regardless of your viewpoints, regardless of your beliefs. So let's take a look at some things that he talks about in that book. He mentions the characteristics of truth. He says that truth is correspondent. That's one of the characteristics of truth, correspondence. What does that mean? That means that the actual state of affairs in the world is often understood, whether it's a statement, a belief, or a proposition. In other words, something is considered true if it accurately represents reality and is grounded in reality, that everybody can say, oh yeah, that is truth. We've corroborated this. Multiple eyewitnesses have seen it, and it doesn't matter what their cultural belief is or, or what their opinions are. They can all say, wow, this is truth. Truth is also coherent. Coherence refers to the logical consistency and harmony of a set of beliefs or statements. So truth often involves coherence within a system of knowledge or understanding. Many people should be able to agree on logical conclusions based on manuscript evidence and textual interpretation. We're both reading the same thing and we can say, oh yeah, it says this. That means it is coherent. We can all understand it regardless of our beliefs or our cultures or our opinions. Truth is also objective. Objective truth is independent of personal opinions or emotions or biases. It exists regardless of individual perspectives and can be verified through empirical observation or rational analysis. When we do this with textual interpretation, we call it hermeneutics. We have a certain amount of tools where we can say, oh yes, 
This is pretty objective. We can agree that this is what it is. Truth is also universal, meaning they apply universally across different times, cultures, and contexts. For example, scientific principles are often regarded as universal truths. Gravity, for example, exists everywhere, whether you believe in it or not. And we can also say that corroborated divine revelations in the Bible are universal truths as well. They can exist and can be applied regardless of culture or context. Truth is discoverable. Truth is often seen as something that can be discovered through the scientific methods, such as observation, experimentation, reasoning, inquiry. So this is particularly relevant in scientific and empirical context, but also in the Bible, because critical and logical textual interpretation of Scripture requires the same scientific approach, so that we can all say, yeah, we can discover the truths of God when we read the Scripture, and we all discover them together, regardless of what our preconceived notions may be. We can ascertain that truth. It is discoverable. Truth is also falsifiable. What does that mean? Well, a claim or a statement is considered truthful if it is potentially falsifiable, meaning there exists a way to prove it false or wrong. Falsifiability is an important criteria in scientific reasoning. The Bible is our source to prove any existing theological hypothesis correct or presumptive. So with the Bible, we can prove whether the truth is falsifiable or not. That means that we have a standard for proving where the truth comes from. Truth is often supported by evidence, which can be in the form of data or facts, observations, logical reasoning, in our case, the scripture, the manuscripts, evidence. And evidence helps substantiate claims and establish the truthfulness of those claims. And here we come to consensus, because in some cases, truth is established through consensus among experts and scholars or a community of thinkers. This is especially true in fields where objective verification might be difficult or complex. Truth is also pragmatic. In some cases, truth is understood in terms of its practical utility and effectiveness. If a belief or statement leads to a successful outcome or prediction, it might be considered true in a pragmatic sense. And this is what we can do with also prophecies. We can verify whether they became true or not. Truth uh, has some subjective elements. Objective truth is often discussed. There are instances where truth can be influenced by subjective factors, such as personal experiences, emotions, or cultural context. But I believe that our human experience and our different personal experiences can actually help deepen or expand our understanding of truth. It doesn't change the truth, but it can help deepen the understanding of truth without changing its immutability. And that's another characteristic of truth. Truth is immutable, meaning in the context of objective truth, they are considered unchanging. That's what immutable means. It remains true regardless of whatever you believe or whatever opinions you may hold. Kind of like gravity. Gravity is gravity. And truth is invariant. Truth does not change based on how it is communicated or by whom it is communicated. It remains the same regardless of the messenger. And so we know that the Bible, in speaking of divine truth, the Bible is our standard of truth because that's 
how God chose to reveal his mystery. And it is written in the word by the apostles and the prophets, as Paul says here. This is a scripture I shared with you a few weeks ago. Ephesians 3, 3 and 4. The mystery of God, right? The mystery was made known to me, writes Paul, by revelation. It was revealed because it's a divine truth that cannot be discovered by science. It has to be revealed. Paul says in verse 4, notice, by reading this, in other words, by reading what Paul wrote, you are able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. So that's how we can ascertain truth. We can all go to the scripture and say, wow, this is what it says. Have you ever wanted to read the Bible in plain English, a language that you can actually understand and follow? Well, there is a translation like that called God's Word Translation by God's Word to the Nations Mission Society. This is the only translation of the Bible in English that follows a dynamic equivalent translation philosophy. It makes the Bible very easy to understand and it flows very naturally in the English language. You can follow along my podcast where I read to you from God's Word Translation for one whole year. You can search for the podcast on Spotify or your favorite podcast reader. Search for God's Word Translation by God's Word to the Nation Mission Society. You can also look it up under my name, Pedro Gelibert. Peter says it this way. We also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed. So the Bible itself has been falsified. In other words, has been proven True. How? Well, we'll see that in a moment. But he says the prophetic word has been strongly confirmed and you will do well to pay attention to it as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you know this, no prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's why it's important that we don't add our interpretation or think that this is what the prophet's interpretation was, because if it was true, then then it's no truth there. There's just man-made opinion. But that's why Peter makes sure that we understand that the prophecy did not come by people's will, but by the will of God as he revealed it to the apostles and prophets. And how was that word strongly confirmed? Well, this is what we have here in Mark 16, 20. Notice how it says they went out, preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them. And how did the Lord work with them? He confirmed the word by the accompanying signs and wonders. So Jesus corroborated this standard when he came. When Jesus came and manifested himself as a human, he verified he is the living incarnate truth. And he verified his word by the many miracles and sign that accompanied it, including his resurrection. The resurrection seals the fact that Jesus is truth and that his word is truth. So culture, opinion, or scholarship, or any other authority cannot be set above the standard of God's revelation, the Bible. Because if it is, then we, can, we will not be able to arrive at truth. We won't be able to know or ascertain this mystery that God has revealed. Some time ago, I shared with you the tribunals of judgment. And these are influences that 
can unsettle or accuse or, or cause us to doubt. And so I think this is relevant to our discussion on truth and authority, because many times people want to subject you to their opinion, right? This is what we call the human heart or the court of public opinion. It sometimes unsettles us because we, we're trying to, to be told that we're something that we're not. Uh, and we shouldn't let this human court or these public opinions unsettle us at all because we don't answer to people's opinions. We answer to a higher court, and that is the word of God. He is the judge. So that doesn't mean we don't respect the law and we don't respect people, not at all. But we have to determine whether we are going to be intentionalists in standing on the truth of Jesus or whether we're going to let people's opinions and, and uh, the world sway us into believing what they think is right. We have to take a stand and not answer to that court or that tribunal of opinion called the human heart. Then we have our conscience. If frequently when we are torn, <laughs> we're torn between our emotions, our heart, and our conscience, it's interesting what Paul says about the conscience in Romans 2, 14 and 15. He says, uh, when Gentiles who do not by nature have the law, meaning the law of God, they do what the law demands. They are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their conscience confirms this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them. So Paul talks about the conscience and how very often the conscience vibes with the word of God. The conscience affirms that the word of God is true. And that conscience, sometimes we call that natural law, which sometimes accuses you or sometimes defends you. And it's sometimes it's mixed in there with God's revelation. And then, of course, we have God's law, the word of God, which is his moral law. Or we also call that special revelation. And we know from Hebrews 4.12 that this word of God is living and active sharper than any double-edged sword, and it penetrates. It's the only thing that can penetrate our soul, our spirit, and it judges the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And that's the only court that we need to answer to as the people of God. We need to stand on the Word of God and let the Word of God guide our conscience, guide even our thoughts and our feelings, because that is what's going to judge us on the last day. So let's veer into this denominational concept, because as we've been hinting at in this study, when there is apostasy or a falling away from the truth, from the standard or truth, people start to think that, oh, their feelings are as good as a guide as the truth. Going back to that, to those tribunals, right? They allow themselves to be judged by their own heart or by the court of public opinion. And that's how denomination comes into play. Uh, we see in the scripture that the churches in the New Testament, they all practice the same thing. Paul said he taught the same thing in every church. They were all the churches of Jesus. They were acting independently according to their local council of elders, deacons, and evangelists. They were not some man-made organization ruled by a council that oversaw collective churches, kind of like how we know some denominations operate today. No, they were not based on man-made principles or doctrines or speculations or philosophies. They were the church and they were ruled by the word of God. 
This word denomination, if we were to break it down, notice what it means. It's composed of three words from the Latin, right? De, which means to break down or separate, as in de-ice, detach, defrost. And we got nomen, which comes from the Latin to name, as, for example, I nominate you as president. And then Asian, which is means the act of, like segregation, the act of separating. So therefore, this term denomination is defined as the act of naming a division or naming a sect, as in a Catholic or a Methodist or an Episcopalian or a Baptist or a Jehovah Witness or a Lutheran, etc. And so soon we will break down how each of these departed from the truth uh, revealed in the scripture, how they have adopted man-made opinions as their standard and truth instead of the scripture. We also have something called ecumenism, which is a movement that gained significant momentum in the 20th century, which events such as the Second Vatican Council in the 60s, 1962-1965, where the Roman Catholic Church and the World Council of Churches, which was founded in 1948, they promoted this interdenominational agenda. So this is a movement that's seeking greater cooperation. They're seeking unity among different branches or denominations of Christianity. So they aim to foster dialogue, understanding, collaboration. Their goal, supposedly, is to unify the church. But as disciples of Jesus, we would argue that such a movement really seeks to compromise the truth for the sake of uniformity, which is contrary to what Jesus teaches. This is like a, a fake unity. Jesus teaches that true unity is found when we deny our opinions and our convictions, when we die to self in order to conform to the word of God. But in the case of ecumenism, they want to conform to worldly principles, to the human court of opinions, to appear more united. And I would say that is a false unity. That is not the unity Jesus prayed for in John 17. Ecumenism is man-made unity. It's not the unity God calls for. And so we also have this these other uh, buzzwords that we've heard from time to time. Probably some of you have heard of this term. Oh, we're a non-denominational church. Sometimes we might use that to describe ourselves. If they ask you, oh, what denomination are you a part of? You might say, oh, I'm not part of any denomination. And you might say, we're a non-denominational church. Well, that's not that accurate because when a church describes itself as non-denominational, it's saying that it does not align itself with a specific Christian denomination, but what it does, it kind of allows all the denominations to influence them. It's really more of an interdenominational church. So many churches use this description as an as, as a way to describe their ecumenical way of, of thinking. And so it becomes something more of interdenominational as opposed to really non-denominational. So Let's look at what the Bible says about these thoughts here. In 1 Corinthians 1.10, we see Paul urging the Corinthians, Ur I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, 
that there may be no divisions among you, and that you may be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. So notice what Paul is urging here. He's urging, look, no divisions at all. We should all be united. We should seek the unity of the same understanding and the same conviction. What does that mean? That means what it, that where it comes to prejudices or, or opinions or my own thoughts or convictions, I have to leave those behind in order to align myself to the truth revealed in the Word of God. So I have to die to certain things. We used to call that back when we were young. We used to call that we have to sacrifice our cows. You know, we have to sacrifice our cows, as in some religions. Sacrifice what I believe. Sacrifice what I may think is true, because I want to align myself to the Word of God. And sometimes it's not that easy, because we hold on to certain preconceived notions. And that's not what the scriptures tell us. They say we need to be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. Sometimes that takes some real intense Bible study together and some time for us to reflect on what we're learning. Paul furthermore says, what I'm saying is this, one of you says I belong to Paul or I belong to Apollos or I belong to Cephas or I belong to Christ. And Paul here asks some rhetorical questions worthy of consideration. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in Paul's name? And then he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one can say you were baptized in my name. So Paul is really reminding them, look, no man was crucified for you. You were not baptized in any one man's name. If we were baptized in the name of Christ, and if we recognize that Jesus was the one crucified for us, we need to make sure that we are dying to self so that we can align ourselves with that revealed truth. Now, appearances can be deceiving. We have to be very careful. If you like this podcast, please show your support by clicking on the support link on my Anchor FM profile. This ensures I will continue producing authentic Christian content as the Lord allows me. Thank you and have a blessed day. We have to be cautious just because people say they are Christians and they use that name because you know that that name is thrown around today. We, that doesn't mean that they are disciples of Jesus. We know what Jesus said in John 8, 31 and 32. He was actually talking to Jews who believed him. And he said, if you continue in my word, you are really my disciples. And, and that phraseology there in the Greek is very interesting. It really should be translated, if you make my word your home, then you are really my disciples. That means that this world is not our home. It's the word of God. It's Jesus' word that has become our home, our abode. And then when we do that, we are really Jesus' disciples because we're giving up our ideas, our preconceived notions in order to follow Christ. And then he says, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So there is a truth, Jesus, that Jesus says we come to know when we resolve to continue in his word and to let go of opinions or preconceived notions or other such things that are not from scripture prejudices or biases, 
anything like that, because we will not be able to ascertain the revealed truth from God if we hold on to any of those preconceived ideas. We get to truth by believing Jesus, by believing the Bible is his word, and if we believe, we will obey it. Just because someone says they're a Christian, that doesn't mean that they're doing that. Just because it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck doesn't mean it is a duck. And Paul kind of really gets into it in some scriptures here. He says in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, he says, Know this, hard times will come. In the last days, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving irreconcilable, meaning they don't want unity, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the form of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid these people. We are living in these hard times, brothers and sisters. These are the last days. And we see all around us that people love pleasure and hate God. And without God, people are left to themselves. They're left to their own devices. They become lovers of self. They are not able to tell the difference. They think that they have some redeeming virtues or some quality. They think that they're doing good. This is what Paul means by saying they're holding to the form of godliness, meaning that in what they do, they might seem to be good, but in their hearts, they're far away from God. They don't have power. They have no power over sin. They become victims of their own sin over and over again. And he expresses that in the following verses. He gets a little deeper into it here. He says, for among them are those who worm their way into households and deceive gullible women overwhelmed by sins and led astray by a variety of passions, always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so these also resist truth. They are men who are corrupt in mind and worthless in regard to the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their foolishness will be clear to all as was the foolishness of Janus and Jambres. Now, Paul is saying some pretty harsh things here about those who follow their own passions instead of following Jesus. Notice how he describes them as worming their way, kind of like a worm in the dirt slithering around, right? And you look at worms and you're like, you know, worms don't really give you a good sense of anything unless you're going fishing and you're picking up the worms to put on the hook. <laughs> but they worm their way, meaning that they are deceptive. They're trying to creep into churches, trying to creep into households with intent on harm and discord. I've heard of that happening. I've heard of very deceptive people trying to become members of a congregation to kind of little by little start dividing people and putting ideas and gossiping about people. All lies. I've heard of this happening. And that's what he's describing here. But these people will be found out. Notice, though, what he says. He says that some people, the ones who are weak in their faith, they are the ones that can be led astray by these corrupt men. 
Notice how he describes the people who are weak in their faith. He says they're gullible, meaning they'll believe anything but the Bible. You ever seen people like that? They believe any conspiracy theory. They believe anything that's out there, but they don't believe the word of God. <laughs> that's what gullible means. They also describe them as overwhelmed by sins. So that means that they haven't intentionally decided to follow Jesus. You know, they're still giving in to the sins over and over and over, led astray by a variety of passions. They're caught up in the sensuality of relative thinking, and they're always learning. Notice what it says in verse 7, always learning, but never coming to a conviction of truth. Because when you're always reading the Bible and trying to read the Bible, but you're not obeying, you're not going to grow in conviction. So that truth is also always going to be escaping you. However, those who intentionally deceive, notice how he describes them as being corrupt in their minds. And when it comes to the faith, they are worthless. And their foolishness will be evident to all. To all, of course, except those who are gullible. So just because you live in the world doesn't mean that you need to conform to it. We are people who live in the world. We see these denominations. We know what's happening in these last days. And we have to resist that. We have to really stand firm in the truth because the church is called to be a beacon of truth. We are the salt of the earth. We're the preservers of truth. We are the light of the world. People are supposed to see that contrast between God's truth and, and the sin that they practice. So we cannot give up. We have to stand firm in this truth and not conform to the world as uh, we read here in the scriptures, don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed. So this is a process, right? We have to continually renew our mind in the scripture so that we can discern, as he says here, what the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God is. We will get to know this truth if we're renewing our mind, not if we're following our heart, not if we're being conformed to the pattern of this world. If you want to be like the world, will you know the truth? The answer is no, which is why James will say, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be a friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. So can you be a friend of the world? Can you support the ways of the world? Uh, thinking, oh, there's nothing wrong with this. And at the same time, say that you are a friend to God. We as Christians, it's hard because we live with this tension because we're, we're in the world. We got to live in it, but we're not of it. So we're constantly bombarded with, with this tension that lives inside of us. John will further say, don't love the world or the things of the world. Nothing in the world, he says. Let's look at it and see it for what it is. He says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And remember, we're not talking about people here. We're supposed to love people, okay, regardless of what they believe or what they practice. We love the sinner. We don't love the sin, right? We, we got that clear. When Paul in the Bible is talking about the world, we're talking about the dark system, the system of evil that we see in the world operating today that is deceptive, that traps people. There are many, many things in the world that trap us. The love of riches, the, the love of passions, really all the things that come from the human heart. He says, 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, and now he clarifies what he means, right? The lust of the flesh, that comes from the human heart. The lust of the eyes, I want, I want, I want. The pride, the arrogance in possessions or wealth. This is what he's talking about here. The competitive nature of things. He said, that's not from the Father. That is from the world. And all these things, he says, are passing away. This is, this is passing away. This is not going to be around for long. So let's not waste our time investing in that system. He says here, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. Brothers and sisters, I don't have to tell you, the world has a lure. The world has a lure. I remember when I came here in 1987 and 1985, sorry, from uh, Puerto Rico. I landed here in New York City. Wow, I was mesmerized by Manhattan and the flashy signs. And, and Times Square was about half as dazzling as it is today. I was completely mesmerized by that. So yeah, you know, the cities of man, they, they have a certain glory to them. Technology and all these things that that mesmerize you. It has an allure, but we ought not to get caught up in it. Don't be impressed by man's achievements. Don't be impressed by people because all those things, they really come from lust. They come from pride in man's achievement. Uh, the love of the Father is not in any of those things, only the lust of man. And if your heart is with the world, you're going to pass away along with the world. Only by obeying God's will will you live forever. Take the example of Abraham. Be like Abraham. Abraham is a great example of this. The author of Hebrews tells us, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, he obeyed and he set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out, even though he didn't know where he was going. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. Why did he do that? For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. We need to be like Abraham. We, are. We, can, we can imitate Abraham. He left the city, Ur of the Chaldees, which was the New York, the Manhattan of his time. He left it to follow God's voice. He didn't go out by sight because it says here he didn't know where he was going. And he didn't know what this inheritance was that he would receive. But he went out by faith because he was looking for the city built by God. And so he was willing to live in tents as a foreigner, as opposed to enjoying the riches of the city of man. He was not impressed by man. He knew what man was because he was a man himself. Let's also follow the example of Moses. Moses, similar, similar story here with Moses. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And he chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. For he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt since he was looking ahead to the reward. So likewise, 
Moses refused to be associated with man's glory, the glory of Egypt, which he knew rather well. He grew up in it. And he rather chose to suffer with the people of God as slaves. He would rather suffer than enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. He considered reproach. He considered this reproach to be more glorious than wealth because he was looking towards a greater reward. So we are those same people, brothers and sisters. If your faith is in the truth of God, if you are a person of truth and you're letting go of opinion, you're letting go of preconceived notions, you're letting go of the world, then you're going to be like Abraham. <laughs> you're going to be like Moses. Yeah, you know, we live in the world, but we're not of the world. We are not people impressed by man's achievements and his ego. No, we want to be people of truth. Because it won't be a Baptist that's sitting on the throne. A Presbyterian or a Methodist that's calling us home And it won't be a charismatic That plays that trumpet tune So let's